Hello and welcome to the Waterstones podcast. My name is Will Rycroft and this is a very special episode because it gives us a chance to speak to the authors who have just been announced uh, on the shortlist of the Waterstones Debut Fiction Prize 2023. And this news is so hot off the press that they have only just found out themselves very recently who else is on the shortlist with them. So I'm not going to waste any time. I want to get straight into the conversation. But rather than me giving a sort of very boring introduction to each author, I'm going to ask the authors to introduce themselves and to distill all those years of hard work uh, into a very short elevator pitch for each of their books. And in the spirit of fairness, I'm going to go alphabetically uh, by first name. I should have prepared you for this, shouldn't I? But that means that Alice Wynne will be the one who gets things going. Alice, over to you. Hi, um, my name is Alice Wynn. I wrote a book called In Memoriam. Uh, In Memoriam uh, opens at this boarding school, this idyllic boarding school filled with um, sort of naive, smug, entitled, charming public school boys uh, in 1914. And the two protagonists are called, sorry, I'm nervous, um, are called uh, Henry Gaunt and Sidney Elwood. And um, they are very good friends, even though they are very different. So Henry Gaunt uh, is a bit of out, out of step with his own time. Um, he's a little bit of a pacifist. He's a bit withdrawn and he doesn't have very many friends. But Elwood, by contrast, is incredibly popular and very romantic. And um, both of them are secretly in love with each other. But because it's 1914, neither of them can express this to each other. And so they both think their love is unrequited. Um, so then, then the war breaks out. World War One, and Elwood is incredibly excited by this, and Henry Gaunt is a little bit concerned, um, and they both end up going to the front to fight. And the question of the novel then changes, uh, and instead of being a question of, you know, will they, won't they, will they ever get on the same page and confess their love for each other, and the question changes instead and becomes one of, will either of these two young men survive? Fantastic. See? I'm already gripped. Um, the authors have probably been sitting there going, where am I going to be in this order of uh, proceedings? But I can tell you that the next author we're going to hear from is Cecile. Hi, everyone. Uh, so my book is called Wandering Souls. Um, it's partly based on family history, and it follows three siblings, and Tan and Min, who leave Vietnam um, after the war in the late 70s, um, spent some time at a refugee camp in Hong Kong, and then finally settled in the UK uh, during the sort of Margaret Thatcher era, which is a time of really big political and societal upheaval. Um, and during the journey, they've lost their parents and four of their younger siblings to the sea in unknown circumstances. So the book is really about them trying to build new lives for themselves from scratch in this country they know almost nothing about, while also trying to deal with immense grief. And, and within that narration, there's also some kind of archival research in nonfiction elements and reflections on griefs and so on. And you hear from different voices, you hear from their little brother, Dao, who's like speaking to them from a place in between the living and the dead. Um, so yeah, that's my book. Fantastic. Thank you, Cecile. Uh, and uh, next we come to Colin, who was very close to coming second, but now you're third, Colin, because of that O. But over to you, please. Oh, cheers, Will. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm Colin. Uh, my book is called Kala, and uh, Kala tells the story of a group of friends who we follow as teenagers and as adults, and the teenage and adult timelines are intertwined. So as teenagers, we're following them really over the course of, you know, this kind of uh, the summer of their lives. You know, it's this time where they're passing through all these adolescent thresholds, like the first love, the first kiss, the first time getting drunk, all that kind of feverish hormonal giddy magic. 
Um, and at the center of this group of friends is Kala. She's 15 years old. She's the leader of the group. She is their emotional core, the heartbeat, the kind of glue that's holding them all together. Um, but the thing is that beneath every kind of smiling surface of this west coast of Ireland tourist town, there's a broiling kind of darkness that's constantly threatening to swallow these characters. And as the summer goes on, they're getting closer and closer to that darkness. And by the end of the summer, uh, Kala goes missing. So 15 years later, three of the surviving members of that original group of teenagers are thrown back together when uh, human remains are found in the woods and the past and the present begin to dramatically and violently collide. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the elevator pitch for Gala anyway. <laughs> Thank you so much, Colin. Um, and now I'm going to move over to Jacqueline. Uh, my novel Fire Rush kicks off in the ghostly underground dub reggae world of 1970s London. It's the black sound revolution when drum and bass was weaponized against police brutality. Based on my life in that subterranean world, the story charts the journey of Yame as she battles for control in that very male-dominated subculture. Waging her own revolution, she goes on the run from a gang that's been exploiting her, escaping to Jamaica, and that's where she connects with her family's past and history and prepares for the biggest fight for her survival. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Uh, and now I'm going to move over to Michael McGee. Michael, please tell us all about your book. Hello, I'm Michael McGee. I've written a novel called Close to Home. And I guess it's about a young man, a young university graduate who um, returns home to Belfast from Liverpool. He sort of falls back into the world that he was trying to leave behind in some way. Um, it's a world of people who haven't been to university like himself. He's kind of the only person in his family to have went, the only person amongst his group of friends who have gone. And in the time that he's been away, there's been this economic crash in 2008. And so there's this feeling that there's very little in the way of opportunities for jobs and whatnot when he returns. And he sort of falls back in with this crowd and with, with that sort of falls back into old modes of behavior, let's just say. He's a lot, he drinks a lot, he takes some takes some drugs. And one night at a house party, he gets into a bit of a argument with a guy, assaults him, and then the rest of the novel then is basically him sort of coming to terms with what he did while navigating a city that's sort of been hit pretty hard economically and that still sort of carries this legacy of a 30-year conflict in the form of the troubles and um, that he's sort of trying to put himself out from under. So, Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael. And to complete our short list, I'm going to move now to Nana. Nana, please tell us all about your book. Um, yeah, first, I'd just like to say I'm definitely not subconscious about the blandness of my background right now. I <laughs> promise I also have access to a room with books and stuff, but I'm on the road right now. Um, my book is called, my name is Nana Kwame J. Brunia. My uh, book is called Chain Gang All-Stars. It's about an imagined future in which convicted wards of state can opt out of a sentence of at least 25 years and participate in death matches. Uh, the draw being that they survive three years on the circuit, three years as part of this blood sport, they're giving clemency, uh, they're freed. And it particularly follows uh, Loretta Thurwar, who is sort of the grand champion of these games and uh, her journey as um, she tries to figure out what her legacy will be and sort of 
the end of her tenure in this space. But it really ends up being a lot about the carceral state, about prisons, about the ethics of um, how to handle those who do harm and our considerations about retribution. It really is a meditation on those things uh, as much as anything else. Fantastic. Well, as I said uh, before we started recording, six books that are so, so different to each other, um, but that have all been highlighted by the Waterstones booksellers who who love them. And as I say, this award is very much uh, about putting the trust in them uh, and their expert sort of opinions about books and, and identifying the, the new voices that excite them most. Um, and so I have asked them to submit questions for all of you. Um, and the first of these is actually coming from a few booksellers and it's sort of a group question uh, for all. And that, of course, is that after you've done the years of work on your sort of early writing, you then have to hand it over these so-called experts like agents and publishers and editors and of course readers and uh, a lot of booksellers were wondering how you deal with what then follows when you hand over your baby to somebody else and um, I'll start I'll keep the flow that we've got going so Alice I'm going to come to you first how did that make you feel when you handed over your your manuscript first of all you know, with a name like Alice Wynn, I really could have come last if you'd just gone by London. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, if for me, it's been really magical. So I, um, I started writing in memoriam in what 2019, I think, and I basically I fell in love with these um, these newspaper articles, these student papers from my old school um, from during the the period of the war, and I uh, sort of I was procrastinating and I ended up accidentally uh, accidentally reading um, all the student papers during the war from like 1913 to 1919, and I became completely obsessed with these newspapers, and. Um, I was so alone in this obsession because they were incredibly sad. I mean, they, they were uh, they were just the most devastating thing I've ever read because they were so raw. You know, it's these teenage boys writing um, obituaries for their older friends, their older brothers, you know, in, in the full knowledge and the full expectation that they will soon be joining their dead siblings and friends at the very conflict that took their lives. So, you know, it was incredibly raw. And meanwhile, uh, I, I, no, no one wanted to hear me talk about it. And like, everyone was just like, like my, my friends made this like bingo sheet whenever I brought up the Great War. And my husband would be like, if it's going to be sad, I don't want to hear about it. Um, and so it was actually very isolating. And so it's been, you know, really lovely to have people come up to me and be like, wow, you know, World War One is so sad. And I'm like, that's what I've been saying. <laughs> I was in America as well, right, where World War One is sort of seen as this like niche, like the War of Jenkins, Jenkins' ear or something. It's like this very niche war. So I was, yeah, I was really isolated in it. And it was, um, yeah, it's it's been really magical having people kind of come and join me in this story that I was, I was in all alone. Um, so for me, like wholly positive. That's fantastic. Well, that's very good to hear because I can imagine it could be quite scary to hand over a text to somebody to look at. Um, Cecile, I understand that you have some experience working within the publishing industry, so you know all too well what can happen when a manuscript gets handed over. How did you feel with yours? Yeah, I think for me, by the time I, I submitted my book to agents, I was very much ready to kind of have it out of my hands. <laughs> and especially because the story was so personal to me, I was really craving uh, to have a bit more of an objective point of view uh, and someone who can could kind of guide me a bit and give me a bit of feedback. So. Um, and I think because I worked in publishing before, I worked at Vintage where Anna and Jacqueline are getting published actually, um, I knew that 
not to take any feedback too personally. I knew that it was just part of the process. So I was really um, open to receiving editorial feedback. So for me, it was it was quite a joyous process. And it was also very interesting to see how different agents had very different opinions of the book. You know, you had some agents who really hated a character and wanted me to remove it. Some other agents wanted me to have include more of that character and so on. So it just kind of proved how um, personal and subjective reading can be. But it was it was really nice to, to be able to talk about the book after um, like Alice having spent so much time just writing it and just being on my own with, with the story and the character. So it was a, a joyous time for me as well. Oh, this is very good. I'm, I'm very <laughs> pleased to hear that there's not sort of vomit-inducing anxiety for everybody. So this is great news. Colin, I'm going to come to you next. Um, you have some experience as well with sort of publishing other authors in journals and stuff, but how, how about for you handing over um, uh, your own manuscript? Yeah, for me, it was all about the vomit-inducing panic, you know, <laughs> uh, from start to finish. Um, no, I was... Um, I mean, it was, I, I, I had, uh, I'd already been working with my agent for a while, just, just like writing short stories and stuff. We've kind of had a relationship, but, um, so she was the only person that I was sharing any of the novel with when I was doing it. And it was actually quite productive for me. Like I work very well with deadlines or something like that. So I would always kind of be like, okay, by this time, I'm going to give you this much. And then by this point, I'm going to give you the next part. And I really have, you know, I, I really trust her with, with my life you know like uh, um i trust her judgment on things uh, very well so that was kind of that wasn't so bad sharing it off with her but then when she submitted it to publishers then definitely you know it was just uh, i was just constant tension headaches like blisters kind of on my gums all this you know all this really you know really sexy stuff so um but yeah you know like that's kind of i guess that's part and parcel of it but um yeah, like at the time of recording, uh, you know, my my novel still hasn't come out. It's it's being it's being launched next week. So uh, I'm kind of like <laughs> I'm like I'm I'm talking to you like this, but it's like the duck gliding on the surface of the water underneath. It's just this frenzy, you know. So uh, yeah, but um, that's that's the long and the short of it, basically. Yeah, I wonder actually because of that, as you say, like because your book is yet to come out, so you're waiting for sort of reviews and things like that. Does something like this, where booksellers have clearly taken this book to their heart and absolutely love it, does does something like that help maybe alleviate some of that anxiety? I mean, uh, yeah, like it means a huge amount, you know. I mean, it's really, yeah, it's it's fantastic. You know, I couldn't believe it when when I was given the news. It was just it's incredible. So that's definitely very heartening, you know. I like I think it's just it's one of those weird things. I don't know if the other if, if everyone else on the call would agree with me, but it's it's that kind of thing that you know. Um, it's almost like no matter how many reassurances you get, you know, they they can always be outweighed by just the doubts that you have <laughs> all the time. And on some level, I feel like maybe that's a prerequisite to being a writer in the first place is you need to have some sort of self-flagellating impulse in there. Otherwise, you'd never inflict the torture of being for hours and years on end, uh, you know. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Um, Jacqueline, your book Fire Rush was uh, shortlisted for the Women's Prize. So this is your second prize you've been shortlisted for already. Um, so you're probably just sort of super calm and cool about all this stuff. But what was it like um, before all of these accolades started to come your way? Um, I mean, I've, I have been showing, I have been collaborating a lot in, in the 16 years that I've been writing this, you know, collaborating with dance or Jamaican dancers, 
dub reggae DJ. So showing my work, so sharing it with editors wasn't an issue because I've, I've been sharing it with just about anyone who will listen and give me some feedback and help me. So that was part of it. But yeah, it's it's really, you know, the shortlisting for the Women's Prize and now this, it does, it does make me feel a bit more, yeah, just a bit more confident about my book being out into in, in the world. And Michael, uh, you've been a bookseller, so you know how that works. But of course, being a writer is a very different thing. And how was that sort of move for you? And how have you handled handing over your own work to people? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I'm speaking for everyone here, but writing writing this novel certainly wasn't my first attempt at writing a novel. You know, I'd written like I tried to write two or three before um, unsuccessfully. So I was well familiar with uh, the concept of rejection um, and had been rejected thoroughly through my 20s. And that sort of um, built up uh, a thicker skin over time. And so when and I spent that when I came to writing this book, I it took me a while to write it. Like, I mean, I started writing in 2016. So. You know, it's sort of, it was the right time in my life to write a book. I also had spent a long time writing it. So by the time it got to sharing it with, there was an agent, on my agent was waiting on the sidelines essentially for me. Um, when I showed it to her, I was kind of ready. You know, I was kind of like, right, this is this is it. Um, and I and when I knew, and, and it's kind of worked out pretty well for me because the my agent wanted to send the book out to publishers on the same week as my girlfriend's 30th birthday so we like took off to paris we just went and it was like glorious you know it actually ruined <laughs> the whole holiday anyway because by the second day we got the first phone call so it was a bit like chaotic it was a kind of very good way of just extracting myself out of like you know being locked in a room and chewing the nails off myself um but from being a book i mean i i lucky I, I spent two years in Waterstones um, while I was writing a PhD and, and it was two glorious, glorious years. Um, I loved that job. Um, so um, going from, it was, it was, it was kind of lovely writing the book while I was working in a bookshop and sort of getting the other side of how books are sold and all that kind of thing, you know. Mm. Um, but then when it happens, you know, as, as Colin sort of alluded to there, you sort, I sort of felt that, that someone was pulling a a very elaborate trick on me you know I, I sort of couldn't and even now I still doubt you know I still sort of go on, I think people are a bit deluded or something's amiss here you know um but that's I guess you just that's that's part and parcel of the of the trade you know humility is a wonderful thing I'd also like to point out that Michael has not been paid to say that he loved working as a bookseller at <laughs> no money has changed <laughs> Uh, and then I'm going to come to you finally. Obviously, you've written stories, but a, a novel is a very different thing, as any writer will uh, attest to. What was it like working on that and then, as I say, handing it over for others to to pass judgment on? Yeah, um, it, it, it's been a journey. Uh, I, I would say that the novel, it felt like swimming with no shore in sight just for a very, very long time. It took me like seven-ish years. And so uh, when I finally gave it a showed it to someone for the first time, I was terrified. I think I'm always terrified. Um, I showed it to my agent, who's my first reader, and a really smart reader, Meredith Kapel Simonoff. And yeah, I was really scared because I didn't know if it made any sense at all, you know? And it's like this thing you've been trying for years and years, uh, maybe just totally not working. Um, 
And but then you you turn it in a book again and again and again. There's so many there's so many phases of turning it. It's the agent, then it's to the editor, and then to the editor again, and then in my case to the editor again, <laughs> and eventually the copy editor. And I feel stressed out and nervous for all every single one of those turning ins. I feel um, really raw and scared every single time. Um, but that said, it's uh, and maybe even beyond that, raw and scared. It's like a, a letting go that I'm still experiencing, like uh, this thing that was just for you for a very long time becomes just for you and your agent, then you and your editor, and then you and the world, mm-hmm. and eventually becomes more the world's than yours. And it's kind of like a melancholic, I know it sounds very like, I'm, I'm playing like a bleak picture, but it's kind of a melancholic experience uh, for me. Um, that said, getting connected with people who eventually read it is amazing, but uh, it's a letting go. and. Uh, it's, it's a, for me, it's a letting go of what has been the most consistent part of my life for almost a decade. And there is some, like, a, just a harshness there. But again, it's a, it's a gift to see the world receive what you are sort of letting go of. That's really, really interesting. And, and thank you, all of you. There's some fascinating answers there for sort of the different experiences you've all had. Um, moving on, I think that one of the most common questions that we've had from booksellers and this will often be the case I think you'll find when you go to do events and speak to people is that people are always interested to know about the inspiration uh, behind books and indeed the sort of the research or the work that you've done in order to create this piece of fiction and what's really interesting I think is that in each of these books you've all had very different experiences there so Alice you mentioned earlier about those school newspapers that you discovered and, and sort of dived into could you tell us a little bit about sort of incorporating those into the novel, but also how you then uh, develop an entire novel from something sort of so brief and, and uh, real. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I can talk about these newspaper articles uh, a lot, um, much more than I think anyone really wants to hear is what I've discovered. But um, yeah, they, they well, okay. So, so I, I've already read, I had read quite a lot of war literature just generally, um, I think, Growing up in the UK, um, and I, I, you know, I went to these kind of boarding schools, and they are sort of obsessed with World War One. And so, you know, you you get in at, at just uh, through the osmosis a certain amount of Siegfried Sassoon, although usually not in a gay way. They really kind of they hide that one under the carpet. But um, and I, I think what I had noted, what I noticed was that um, war literature it's usually written by people who have gone through this terrible trauma. And then, you know, they spend 10 years sort of processing it and then they package it and they try to to write it out. So, for instance, um, Robert Graves and Vera Britton, they both talk about writing novels first and then they those novels just don't work and they have to scrap the novels and then they have to try writing instead memoirs. And sometimes in their memoirs, they'll have whole sections where they're like, uh, you know, like, I here's just a passage from the original novel I wrote because it's better than what I'm going to So, it, you know, they're very highly processed, these um these pieces of war literature usually um i mean a lot of the best world war one literature came out in like 1929 and so what was unusual about these school newspapers is that they are they are so immediate they are coming out like instantly as the war is going on and and you know unlike war literature which is written by someone who went through a trauma trying to explain what that was like to people who were not there these newspapers are just for people going through the trauma to other people in that same circle with them. So you feel like, you know, a, a voyeur, you're watching it and it and it's so um it's so raw and and um and painful to I mean it's really painful to read. Um but 
it's sort of hard to describe how I felt reading it. And um, yeah, I just, I really wanted to get that across. And so one of the key parts of the book is that um, these newspapers are throughout and I I lifted directly from the newspapers and I kind of um, sort of chose the bits that I found most heartbreaking. And, um, you know, for instance, one of the ways you'll have to try and find out if a character you like survived a battle is that you get the list of the dead in the school newspaper and you scan the list of the dead and you see oh, he lived or he didn't live or he's wounded or I don't know what happened to him. Um, and I, I just wanted to get across that feeling that I got even just in this small way um, when I would get attached to these people who um, I had read about and, you know, for instance, Siegfried Sassoon had a brother called Hamo, and the only anecdote I know about Hamo Sassoon uh, is that um, Sassoon once uh, came out to him and told him, you know, I, I prefer men, and Hamo just answered, well, me too. And um, so I, I remember this, like, shock I felt when I saw his name in the list of the dead, and that was it, you know. And then I, and like that name just jumped out of me at the list. Um, you know, I was just scanning the list, and this one name was so much more important than the others. And of course, Every name is like that to someone. And I just wanted to get that feeling across. Um, and that's only really the beginning of the research. I mean, those, the, the incredible thing about World War One, because I'm, I'm now reading a lot about the Crusades and like it's a really um, <laughs> alienating series of conflicts that is really, really hard to get emotionally invested in, in in a lot of ways. But with World War One, there's so much incredible literature. So it was um, it was it was really uh, an incredible experience just to like really dive deep into that. But I don't. I'm not gonna. I, I really. I've got to stop myself. <laughs> <laughs> we do. We do a spin-off podcast episode if you want, Alice, and you can go into full detail. Talk about war. The war. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, Cecile, I'm going to come to you now because you too are sort of pulling from historical sources, if you like, but you, your own family's history, which of course throws up a, a completely different challenge to the writer. Could you tell us a little bit about that sort of research? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So. Um... So even though so my mom also lost uh, her parents and siblings during their journey, but my mom, you know, she went to a camp in Thailand and then she went to France. So straight away, I, I changed the setting, which I thought, you know, both for my mental health was quite good because it meant that I could sort of dissociate from from my family story and, and the story I was trying to write. And the I purposefully didn't ask my mom too many questions about her experience because I did want the characters to not be based on her and, and on my, my uncles. Hmm. Um, but I think finding that balance and, and getting into that kind of mindset was quite hard at first. And I procrastinated a lot at first. And a lot of it was, was doing my own research and, and like Alice, like reading uh, newspaper articles and, and national archives and so on. Um, but um, so it took a while and I, and I felt a lot about the responsibility about writing about a true story in some ways and, and writing about the Vietnamese boat people um, as well and, and, you know, finding that balance between how much trauma should be in the book and how much hope. And so I was very aware of all those, those questions when I started writing the book. And, and finally I had to kind of just trust my instincts um, a bit, I think, because otherwise I would never have written the book. I actually can't even really remember writing the book because it was such an intense kind of, I think I wrote the bulk of it in about six months. So it was a very intense um, process uh, for me, but then I showed it to my, to my family and they were very, gracious and they really liked it or so they say um so yeah this i suppose an element when you're writing about family history and you hand it over to them that i guess you're wanting their sort of blessing right you want them to kind of go yes this is fine you may you may take our lives and turn them into fiction 
Yeah, very much so. But I mean, my most of my family doesn't speak English, they speak French. So the book's coming out in France in August. So that's another stress that's on my mind okay. at the moment. But uh, yeah, but my mom did read the English version and, and was really happy about it. Good. So you've had the first part of judgment and the rest is coming soon. From <laughs> exactly. France. Good to know. Um, Colin, I'm assuming with the plot of Carla that, that it's not connected to something that's happened in your real life, but I could be wrong. But the characters, I think, feel very um, real. So many people have commented about how it reminded them of their own sort of teenage years. And as you said, first love, first kiss, first drunken, uh, whatever it might be. Um, could you tell us a little bit about where that inspiration came from and, and, and the work that you did in putting the plot together? Um, I mean, it was very incremental, I suppose, but it's kind of like, um, I was reading a, a book recently that was, it, it was about the, all these revolutions that happened in Europe in 1848. And it used a metaphor that I thought that's maybe the best metaphor for how the creative process works that I've ever come across. But he was actually describing the outbreak of revolution. And he was saying that like, that it's not like something happened here and then something happened there. And you can kind of trace this linear line of how all of these things broke out. He said at a certain point, the process entered the fission stage and there were just these simultaneous detonations occurring in multiple locations that had these weird subterranean connections with one another. Um, but like he says, at this, at this point, the historian despairs and the only word that they can keep using is meanwhile. And that's sort of, that's sort of what like the creative uh, process was sort of like in the sense of, you know, I know that I need to come up with a very succinct, like this is where it came from, but it was more like, you know it kind of went like that and then there would be periods where you did feel like you were just pushing a boulder really slowly up a hill but then you'd come over the top of the hill and then you were chasing after the boulder because everything was suddenly doing the again you know yeah so it's not like i was doing necessarily um research for anything in the novel per se because it's much more it's just embedded in the relationships of these characters but i think that one of the things that one of the things that I probably brought with me into the book is that is this idea of displacement or dislocation because like Michael was mentioning earlier about you know the impact of the economic crash in Ireland and there really is a whole generation of people uh, including my entire friend group that basically was just shattered by that uh, and was scattered all around the world and like most of us have never been back you know I've never lived in Ireland again um, mm -hmm. so. That was something that I, I didn't consciously, I wasn't consciously thinking about that when I was writing the book. But of course, you know, you get to the end of it and then you realize the amount of displacement that there is within the characters, this kind of very ambivalent connection to home and things like that. Um, and I think that that's something that probably a lot of people actually can respond to today because of the fact that we are living these fairly deracinated lives a lot of the time. So you know, I think on, on that's like on the adult level. And then of course, on the teenage level, I think everybody, no matter what you, no matter what the content of your experience of it, of being a teenager was, everyone has some sort of belly memory of the intense emotional voltage of those years, you know? Um, so I kind of would, uh, yeah, I don't know. So that's, that was where it was coming from. But again, you know, more like fission explosions as opposed to a linear kind of <laughs> process. As you were talking about teenage memories there, all six of us were just like nodding our heads. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Um, Jacqueline, the, the underground world that you take us to in Fire Rush is sort of so specific and it will lead many people to assume that 
the novel is at least semi-autobiographical. So my first question is, is that true? Uh, and if so, how do you sort of manage those very porous lines between fact and fiction? Mm, yeah, it, I, I'm very much drawing on my lived experience. Um, uh, I did, I was involved in the gang, I was exploited. I, I wrote the novel as a way of exa- exploring my experiences, but also trying to understand the behaviour of those people in my life and, and beyond that I wanted to go back to the people I knew in that world and I started to realise that I was actually writing about a lost world because uh, the dub reggae world took place underground 12 midnight till 7 in the morning out of sight of uh, mainstream society it, it is a lost world and I got excited about trying to recreate that that world and in trying to bridge the gap between fact and fiction you know, I think I'm working with memory and memory is so unreliable. I start with the memory of my experiences and the people in that world. And then for me, fiction is a way of going deeper into understanding uh, the motivations of, of people um, that were in my world. I think fiction for me is a much more powerful way of exploring human behavior. And so I start off um with lived experience as a starting point and fiction takes me beyond that into a deeper level of understanding. That's really interesting. This is almost connected to what Alice was saying earlier about the rich literature that surrounds the First World War is so much easier to connect to than the slightly dry historical sources that you might find about the Crusades. So that would leave a nice uh, window for some more crusade fiction, which I guess is what Alice is working on, but we'll find out. Um, uh, Michael, I'm going to come to you now because similarly to, to Jacqueline, uh, my understanding is that your early writing for Close to Home was was much closer to memoir than it was to fiction. So could you tell us a little bit about how you take sort of memory and then what you need to do in order to sort of make that switch and, and turn it into a novel? Yeah. Um, a bit, well, actually, the, the, the book started out um, as a writing exercise that a friend of mine suggested whenever I was, I just started my uh, a PhD in creative writing uh, at Queens in Belfast and was uh, sort of banging my head against the, the wall trying to figure out what to write. And and uh, although saying that I was writing, but I just wasn't uh, writing anything particularly worthwhile and, and, and sort of writing the wrong thing. I don't really know how to, I sort of, I was trying, and it, weirdly it was the same world that I sort of end, turn, ended up writing about, but I just couldn't get close enough to it. Um, or there was a reluctance in me to go too far into it. Um, and I was probably trying to protect myself in some way, you know, it's a weird defense mechanism. And so he sort of suggested that I write a letter to the most intelligent person I know. It was him. Um, his name's Tom Watts. Um, yeah. But he sort of said, do this, start at any point in your life and just go from there. Um, the reason he actually suggested this is that he came up to Belfast. He lived in Dublin at the time, and we sat up late drinking one night. And we had one of those nights, you know, where friendships are made. And we sort of mm-hmm. told ourselves all about our lives and all our problems, you know. And he was like, you need to, you need to fucking write about this. It's like, right, okay. So we, we sort of, we did. And so I started this letter, and 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 I started at the point where the book started and, and, and just went from there. And the letter just kept getting longer and longer, and over the course of about three or four months I suddenly had like a, a draft or manuscript length piece of writing um which I had to print off <laughs> oh it sounds terrible I had to print it off and sort of post it out to him you know so it was almost to me like I'm burdening myself with all this stuff 
And then he he rang me a few days later and he said, "You know what this is, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah, I guess I do." And and but it, it was kind of highly confessional, um, sort of block of writing, but ha- had a kind of narrative through it. And I was kind of using novelistic sort of mechanisms. You know, I was I was using dialogue, and and there were little scenes and sequences in the that initial letter that found their way into later drafts, and which I sort mm-hmm. of worked off. Um, but then, then it became a process of like gauging distance, you know, of, of, of taking myself out of it. The, the memoirs of form just didn't suit me. Um, as Jacqueline said, like some, you know, you, it, I, I felt I needed more freedom and that I needed space. And there was a brilliant essay that I've quoted more than once by, um, Vivian Gornick and the situation in the story. And she sort of talks about like creating this narrative persona in order to get the right distance that you need from the material that you're writing about. And she uses that in terms of non-fiction, you know, but I think it, it applies to fiction if if you're in, if you're using, you know, your own experiences or whatnot, like, mm. you know. And so when that happened, and it, it was such a, it, it, I mean, it was weird little tricks. And I guess like so much of writing is sort of tricking yourself in certain ways and finding ways of doing things, you know, and one of the, it was as simple as like changing the reader's name, which at this at the in the in the early drafts was he was called Mick, you know, and then I changed his name to Sean, and that just sort of created. I was like, oh, he's he's not me anymore, you know, and he was almost this other version of myself that, that could have existed but didn't, and and so I sort of used that, and that sort of just opened things up in all sorts of ways, you know, um, and allowed me to say things that I otherwise probably couldn't have within the realms right. of memoir, you know. So and but the, but but while also, you know, uh, having the joy of writing fiction and, and, and better than yeah. that, like, fascinating. Um, it's it's quite a gear shift to come to you now, Nana, because of course this sort of the imagined future that's contained within Chain Gang All Stars takes us into sort of dystopian territory. But I'm reminded of of Margaret Atwood when she was talking about The Handmaid's Tale. She said, "I haven't made up anything in this book. Like at some point in human history." somewhere on the planet, all of these things have happened and I've just put them into this story. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the inspiration behind Chain Gang All-Stars and, and the research that is still required to create a, an imagined world like that? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, if I kind of went into me deciding to go down this road, I didn't ever really hope to have to do real research and I did have to do that for this one. Um, I think initially it came, my father was a criminal defense attorney when he was alive. And uh, I remember the first time he told me that he uh, was defending someone who had committed a murder. And I was probably like 10 or 11 or 12. And I remember thinking like, okay, well, my dad's a villain now, you know? <laughs> and um, and then I, I don't know what I said, but something like, you know, some kind of like protest. And I remember him telling me it's not that simple. And uh, that's probably like a seed that got planted really, really, really early on. Um, and yeah, and when I'm in, in writing this book, I think I wanted to discover if I really believe some of the things I thought I believed, like in terms of abolition or, um, changing the carceral state and changing prisons completely. Um, and so I did research and I discovered, yeah, that everything that I've created, um, there's a difference in kind, but not in the nature of things. Um, I think that, uh, or I know that at least the American carceral state is direct descendant of the of the slavery system. I think I know that like slavery is explicitly protected in the American Constitution. Um, there's things like the Auburn system of prisons, which I cited in the book, where 
prisoners were forced into a 24-hour silence and could never speak. And so um, the speculative aspect of the book or the things that I make up, the surrealist conceits, they're more just like a tool that I can be, that I can manipulate to be both hyper-specific or difficult to reduce. Um, but um, yeah, it's a, it, it required a lot of research because that was, the research and like the understanding of this carceral state in our real world actually was a foundation for, I don't know, like my, the heart behind what I was trying to get to, which is that um, it's really hard to be like, in this particular place, we're gonna have an institution founded on cruelty and, and suffering because people have suf caused suffering. Um, once you do that, it's really hard to contain that. Thank you so much, Nana. Um, I'm going to come to some more uh, sort of individual questions now from our booksellers. And I'm afraid, Alice, I'm not going to mess with the flow. I'm coming to you first. Um, <laughs> this question comes from from Gabby. And uh, as we've mentioned, the, the, the novel is filled with um, a lot of emotion um, that you've been talking about, but also it also has a lot of action, um, including uh, a very exciting prison escape. And Gabby was wondering how you go about uh, sort of getting the research right for something like a set piece like that and, and how you sort of keep it accurate, but also thrilling. Well, um, the World War One prison prisoner of war escapes w were just really thrilling. Um, so the the prisoner of war escape that one of the characters uh, undergoes is um, is based on the Holzminden escape, which was the kind of ultimate. It was the sort of first great escape. Like when we think about the great escape, we think of World War Two, but um, the Holzminden prison escape was when um, these men uh, dug a tunnel beneath I, I can't remember if there was a moat or not in Holzminden I think there wasn't but anyway they dug a tunnel and uh 10 of them escaped and got all the way back to the UK which is incredible odds um and one of them got uh the the, the tunnel collapsed on him uh and the character who the, the there's a tunnel collapse in the book uh and the guy in the tunnel is inspired directly by the guy who got stuck in the tunnel in the Holzminden prison escape who was this British Indian pilot uh called Errol Chanda Sen um and yeah really it, I mean the, the story is so incredible to begin with um and I think, in fact, there were so many cool things in these um, prisoner of war escape books uh, that I couldn't use because I, you know, I, I, I like I, I sent the manuscript to a lot of friends, like maybe ten or fifteen friends, and so they would scale me back. They'd be like, "Okay, this bit you just put in, like it's interesting, but it reads like a Wikipedia article, like it's not relevant to the plot." And I'd have to like cut that back. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was so much stuff I I couldn't put in. Like there was this one guy who escaped um, by just he just um, he spoke pretty good German and he just got on a train and like he was part of the tunnel escape. He he dug his way out and then he just took trains out of Germany and just like whenever anyone spoke to him he would just be a bit unfriendly and they'd leave him alone um but like his description of it is just terrifying because like it'll happen that a bunch of german soldiers will get on the train and you know he he he's just kind of like trying to look german um and it, i don't know it was just and what's funny about the prisoner of war um literature is that it's this sort of hilarious sideshow to the western front because the western front you know is, is like it's just pretty much wall-to-wall -wall bleakness and then uh the the rules of these prisoner of war camps are they're like it's like gentlemen's rules so like um i mean i'm talking about officer prisoner of war camps because i'm pretty sure that if you were a private you were just like sent to go build like walls in siberia or something uh it was bad but um for the officers as long as they um promised 
to not escape. They were allowed to go on little promenades through the town. Mm-hmm. Um, and they and they wouldn't escape because they had given their word as an officer. And so they would just literally just, they'd go on little walks and like go to the shops and, you know. Uh, so it, it's just it's just madness. Um, really, really silly. Uh, so I really wanted to incorporate that because it was something that, it brought so much levity to the novel, but I also thought it was a really good way at examining sort of the the classism and xenophobia right because it is it, it's this thing that the officers are going through that is so different from how it would have been if they were not part of this ruling class they would you know they would have been in the normal prisoner of war camps and instead they get to basically be in like sort of gentlemanly sort of prisoner of war public school mm. so yeah i don't know i don't know if that answers the question but um yeah the action is all there in the original material yeah that's, no, it, it certainly does answer the question, Alice. Thank you. Um, Cecile, I, I'm going to come to you now. This is a question that came from Hope, and it actually came out of the discussion in, in the shortlist panel, which was uh, so many readers of your book had said about how they had found it very emotional to read. It had made them cry. And uh, I'm a terrible person because I hardly ever cry when I'm reading stuff, and I'm highly suspicious of people who do. But presumably when you're writing... Um, is that thought in your mind? Are you, are you thinking, I want to write something that's going to hit people right in the fields? Or are you just, do you have to just sort of distance yourself from that and just hope that you, the truth will, will have the emotional impact? Yeah, no, I, I didn't write the book. <laughs> I really want to make everyone cry. <laughs> uh, and I never really know quite what to say. If I should say, like, thank you or sorry when people come up to me and say, you make me cry. Uh, but it's, um, I'm really glad that the story resonated with, with people. But I think um, I just wanted to write kind of you know real characters and and show the emotional resonance that that this story can have on on just an air of people and on you know the three siblings but also on um you know there's a kind of a narrator as well in the book which is kind of a from the younger generation who's like writing in the present day and i wanted to show how one event can affect kind of different people um as well um but i think after a while when writing the book i got a bit numb by how sad the story was and I was part of a writing group at the time part of the London Writers Awards and I I had to ask my writing group like is this chapter too happy because <laughs> I was like oh, no, there's one chapter where they see snow for the first time and it's kind of one of the first moment in the book where they regress to the state of childhood and you see them being joyful and I was worried that it was just like too too happy and then my writing group was like, no, this is really sad. Like they've just lost their whole family and like they're just um, being children again. So I think it was very helpful to have that that feedback to be able to get the balance right between not being not the book being too much of a sob, traumatic story, but also having some hope and some moments of happiness in it. Because I, I did want to get that that balance right somehow. Colin, I'm going to come to you next. And this is a question from one of our booksellers called Saba. Um, she said that she loved the chapters that came from different perspectives uh, of the different characters and how each character was beautifully fleshed out and it gave the reader that sort of chance to inhabit their world. But she wonders if there was ever a point when you considered doing a chapter from Carla's perspective. Well, one of the inspirations structurally behind the book is there's there's an essay uh, that Gay Talese wrote in the 1960s um, where he was trying to get an interview with Frank Sinatra. He was trying to interview Sinatra and uh, he kept on getting rebuffed by Sinatra's people. So every time he would ask for an interview, they'd say, oh, Mr. Sinatra has a cold. So he was talking to Sinatra's bodyguard, to uh, the person whose job it was to look after Sinatra's toupee. 
he was talking to fans that would be camped out at Sinatra's hotel, things like that. And gradually he realized that this would be the material of the story. Um, so I can't get a direct a direct contact with Sinatra, but I can make this collage of voices, of perspectives surrounding Sinatra. And through that, I'm going to get this really fleshed out, multi-dimensional, multi-perspective uh, image of the man. And what I really loved about that structurally is that it opens up all of these spaces where you have these contradictory viewpoints of Sinatra. Um, and the the reader is invited to enter the kind of the, the fissures that exist between those different perspectives in order to discern the real Sinatra that's uh, existing somewhere between all of these images. And at the same time, the plurality of perspectives also captures the mercurial nature of what it is to actually be a person. Um, so what I, you know, when it, when in terms of Kala, like the, the character of Kala Lanan, in many ways she is, structurally speaking, she is the Sinatra of the novel in the sense that she is the, she is a, an enigmatic presence or um, the, a haunting absence that it, it conducts the entire novel. She is the book center of gravity. She she's there on every page. She's determining every every character's thoughts and actions. Um, but at the same time, I the reason that I wouldn't have given her a first person perspective thing is because what I really wanted was for you to have that space as a reader to try and actually get closer to Kala yourself by discerning who she was between the different representations that you're getting, not just from the three narrators, but from the voices of the local gossips, uh, newspaper reports, uh, all of these kinds of things. Because what I felt like is that if you left that space open for the reader, they would be entering the book and becoming creatively involved in the creation of Kala themselves, you know? That's right. I had no idea that Sinatra was going to appear in this podcast, but it was great to having me and it gives me a, a really really dodgy segue now to move over to Jacqueline uh, to talk about music because of course um, one of the things with Fire Rush is the rhythm of the language and I was lucky enough to sit in on the sort of panel discussion for the shortlist and everybody was talking about the rhythm of the prose and this sort of pulse that it gives the reading. Can you tell us Jacqueline a little bit about how on earth you go about creating a style like that? Um for me, the, 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 what I want to do, this, I set myself the challenge of bringing uh, music into, into the word somehow. And um, I felt it was important writing about this, this, the black sound revolution to have a language of music somehow. I didn't know how I was going to go about it, but I thought, hey, I'm just going to experiment and try and find my way. So I wrote lots of short stories, experimenting with with sound and language, I spoke to musicians, um, but also using Jamaican patois and dub reggae sound effects was my way into trying to find a language um, that that could represent um, the black sound revolution and also the artistry um, and the, the kind of revolutionary uh, intonation of Jamaican vernacular. So it was really, important to me I think that was the driving force behind behind writing this was to was to kind of highlight the uh, the artistry of of Jamaican or Caribbean language and mm. the sound effects of dub reggae uh, that have come out of Jamaica that's fascinating it's, it's so good to hear because as I say it, it everybody who has read that book has had the same response to it which is that it's not like anything else they've read because it has this unique rhythm to it 
And and of course, for some readers, they might slip into that really easily. Others will find it more challenging. But the challenge is all part of the job, right? That's sort of what you're trying to do is to to give voice to something which is underrepresented. Would that be a fair? It was definitely about championing the the vernacular, whether that of any 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 community, any marginalised community. I, I believe strongly in voice and. Uh, that every language, every vernacular has its value and it shouldn't always be, you know, standard English that is, you know, looked up to as high culture. So it was it was me kind of having my own mini revolution on the page. <laughs> um, Michael, as we mentioned, um, you were a Waterstones bookseller. Um, and, and just to reiterate once again, no money has changed hands. Everything is completely above board. Um, I did wonder whether, you know, that experience that you had, you mentioned that you really enjoy being a bookseller. Is there any of that that helps or feeds into your work as a writer? Maybe just simply the exposure to the books that you have as a bookseller or authors or indeed when speaking to, to readers. Is there any sort of way in which it helps to be a bookseller first? Um, well, I wasn't a bookseller first, to be fair. You know, to it was right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but um, not really. No, I mean, you sort of... It's a customer service facing job. It's a customer service job, you know, and, and that was the jobs that I did throughout my 20s was in bars and cafes and and uh, Waterstones. So by the time I got the Waterstones, it was like I'd entered the promised land, you know, like the other jobs were much worse. Um, and it's just like I was sort of walking around the shop being like, I can't believe you think this is work. This is this is incredible. Like, you know, um, I get to talk to people about books. Um, and that was probably my favorite part of the job. I mean, there, there is very little in the way of crossover between selling books to people and writing books, other than that you get to actually talk about books, which is always nice. Uh, the, but, I, but And you also get to meet a lot of people who are interested in books, and that's pretty nice. There was this particular guy who used to come in on a Saturday. He was an Italian guy who spoke about three or four languages. It was in Belfast, like for work for a few months. And he used to come in and he would say, right, recommend me a book. And I had to just bring him up to the fiction section, just give him whatever book. And and I would, I, the, one of the first ones I tried to recommend to him was Bellanio. I was like, you should read some Bellanio. I think that, the week before that, he had read something like that. And he said, I've, I've read it in Spanish. And I was like, right, okay. <laughs> where this is, okay, the bar is high. And so every week he would, he would literally just walk in and go, what am I reading this week, Michael? And I would say, Joyce? No, I've done it. it just, and it's just like, and it was a real challenge. But that was that, and that was kind of one of my favorite customers. I remember re- recommending them Lucille Berlin, and she she really, really liked that. Um, but no, no crossover at all. I mean, you don't get the right when you're working. You know, you're sort of just standing talking to people and selling books. Yeah, that's the. We, we do discourage people from from writing whilst working. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Yeah. I did think that we that the uh, HR department might be able to use your line. Um, it's better than other jobs in their next hiring drive for book. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, cleaning my club toilets is definitely a step down from working in books. You know, that's the... yeah. good. Good to have some perspective, I would imagine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and Nana, I'm going to come to you um, with a question from Fiona. Um, she said that she loved the footnotes because they really grounded the book for her. Um, but she wanted to know why you, you know, why you had added those, and whether the publisher was on board with that idea right from the start. I've been uh, very lucky that my editor, who represents the publisher, has never like tried to make me not do something I really, really want to do. 
or maybe I should rephrase that. The things they told me not to do, like I definitely shouldn't have done and I didn't do them. But the footnotes mm-hmm. were something they were cool with from the go. And um, I was um, grateful for that. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I included them because it's funny. I don't, if you would have asked me, I don't think I like footnotes usually. Um, but I think that my aversion to them was that they kind of, Broke the fictive dream, which I sort of had been taught was like really paramount. I read the um, John Gardner as a younger writer, the art of fiction, and his whole thing is like never break the fictive dream. And footnotes sort of necessarily do that by just like forcing your eye to move down. Um, but I think that tension almost became like a challenge to me. Like maybe if I can make footnotes that I like, they could be really engaging for a reader. And so I wanted them to be really dynamic as opposed to purely um, encyclopedic as most footnotes are. Um, uh, and they operate in a lot of different ways. Sometimes they're elegiac, sometimes they are more information, sometimes they are other stuff I don't want to spoil. But um, I most they mostly do provide like real life context. Sometimes I cite case law, sometimes I cite constitutional law, sometimes I cite things that the police or the carceral state has done in our lived world. Um, because I want it to be impossible to um, read this book as it's just about a woman with a hammer killing people. You know, I uh, yeah. I I had a, I know someone or I knew I met someone who was when Squid Game was out, and I was talking to him about it. And I could I was listening to him talk, and I was like, but you know, but it's about this capitalism. And he had watched the entire Squid Game and never thought about capitalism once. If you can believe wow. that, yeah. And so uh, that feels terrifying, but this, that, that's a very obvious example. But there's a lot of, there's a huge long history of poems and stories that we read. And over years, they get the exact, almost the, not only a wrong reading, but almost the exact uh, opposite reading. The Robert Frost is an example with his poem. There's a lot of things that like become like almost sacred in literary canons and uh, lose all their meaning. And so I basically wanted it to be impossible for someone because it, it's a violent book that employs violence in a serious way. I wanted it to ne- that violence to always be tethered to this institution that I think is extremely oppressive. Um, and that that's probably the primary reason uh, for the footnotes. Fantastic. Well, as you have said that sentence, I've looked at my clock and realized that we have passed the hour mark. Um, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I just want to say, I'm just going to grab my copies um here the for anybody who's listening or watching that obviously this is a prize which is all about our booksellers identifying the the new voices that excite them most and so that means that whether you read one of these books or all six of them it is just the beginning because all of these writers here are people that you should be waiting with bated breath for them to publish book two, three, four, and five. Um, I'm going to say them all by name. You can all um, take a little bow as I do this. So we have Wandering Souls by Cecile Pin, Fire Rush by Jacqueline Crooks, Close to Home by Michael McGee, In Memoriam by Alice Wynn, Carla by Colin Walsh, and Chain Gang All-Stars by Nana Kwame Ajay-Brenyar. I think I got them all right. Yeah. That's uh, that's my contribution. Um, thank you, all of you, uh, for joining me. It's been so fascinating to hear about all six books um, and to hear a bit more about one, what went into all of them. Uh, best of luck to you all. There, of course, can be only one winner. Um, but as they say, you're all winners here. <laughs> thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.